0: Feeling better. Looking better. Making life better. It's life tips. Life, tips, life, tips, life tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Life Tips. Life tips. Life tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Welcome your hosts, Byron White and Amanda Smith. Hey everybody! We are back this week, and sadly, we are without Byron. He's away at a trade show, but uh, working—you know—working hard and and busy. And he will be back with us next week. So until then, uh, joining us will be Alan Fortescue from the Earthwatch Institute. He's got some really cool ideas on um, on the environment and and changing—you know—economy. <laughs> And uh, what he's calling Obama's golden opportunity. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm sure he's got a lot of really cool stuff to tell us. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Editorial review for rush delivery of your submissions within 24 to 48 hours. Article distribution at its easiest. One form, one click, thousands of results. Get your free account today at articlesender.com. That's article s-n-d-e-r.com. Next, with our lean and mean team, how can we manage our publishing needs and still have time to save the planet? No worries, 99. DMX is the premier ad exchange network. They publish ads that circle the globe every day. It's a mission possible. But you know our inventory needs maximum exposure. Would you believe DMX had 10 billion impressions just last month? Their real-time auction-based service gets us the top dollar for our ad space, while their superior service saves us the time we need to save the world. (laughs) Oh, sorry about that, Chief. But we need creative control and our own third-party networks and who will help manage our relationships. DMX has MediaGuard. We can select our own advertising banning profile so direct media exchange networks know which ad types we don't like. And we look great. And did I mention DMX is free? Looks like working undercover is a thing of the past.
1: Get smart. Get DMX. Making every impression count.
0: What's that sound coming from your computer? That's the sound of me making money with ReferBack.com. They've shown me how to... ReferBack.com show me how to turn clicks on my existing site into cash. ReferBack gives you free banners, mailers, even your own personal account manager. Oh, can they help me make money off my blog, too? Absolutely. Your websites, your blogs, they can all be making you money. You can even earn 50% commission on your first month. Put some into your website. Just visit referback.com. Jim Hedger and Dave Davies bring you the experts and in the information so that you can further explore the web marketing world. Webcology, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel, only on Webmaster radio.fm. And now, back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, Faster and wiser. Here are your hosts. Hey everyone, we're back and we're joined today with by Alan Fortescue, the director of education for the Earthwatch Institute. Alan, are you here? I am. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Now, tell us a little bit more about the Earthwatch Institute for listeners who might not be familiar with it.
1: Um, uh, well, let me, I will jump into telling you about Earthwatch, but I just want to clarify something just straight off the bat, that uh, when I talk about Earthwatch, I'm definitely talking about Earthwatch, but I know you also were talking to me about some of my views about the Obama campaign and uh, mm-hmm. the Obama administration. When I jump into that part, I'll be talking about uh, ideas that are my own. Um, but jumping into the Earthwatch Institute, we are the world's uh, largest environmental volunteer nonprofit which means we coordinate people from all over the world to participate on um, ongoing scientific research projects, um, actually assisting scientists in the field with their research and uh, uh, undergoing an educational program while they're doing that.
0: Really? So and specifically about, uh, what, what sort of um, scientific research does, do your volunteers help with?
1: Well, currently we have about 130 projects in 40 different countries around the world, and our projects are organized around four key areas. Uh, which have to do with climate change, uh, the health and the maintenance of oceans and the natural resources that we uh, get out of the oceans, as well as uh, land resources and the management of natural resources on land and sustainable cultures. So our uh, volunteers and our scientists engage in work um, anywhere looking at uh, indicator species, large mammals, Um, and how well they're doing in their given ecosystems or looking at larger issues like uh, sort of whole ecosystems and how well they're functioning given uh, issues like climate change and or uh, human impacts.
0: So how do you recruit your volunteers?
1: Um, Well, it's through a lot of different sources. Um, We have a lot of different kinds of opportunities for volunteers. We have funded opportunities. Uh, We work closely with a lot of different corporations that are interested in making substantial changes to who and what they are as they think down the line about the environment and the types of uh, challenges they'll face as organizations. And so a lot of corporations will actually come to us and want to become involved with the research and get some of their corporate leadership out into the research in the field to talk with scientists, educators, and others working on big issues like climate change and trying to understand how that will impact their bottom line as well as impact the health of the environment, so uh, we also have opportunities for teachers fellowships that are sponsored through foundations and others that bring K through 12 teachers out into the field where they can learn about you know again important issues related to some global challenges and bring those issues back to their classrooms um, and then we also just have um, volunteers, people like yourself or you know, anybody from any walks of life who can dial into our website or uh, look at one of our catalogs, which is sent out, and find something that is of interest to them and just call us up and uh, we can help them participate in that way.
0: Now, tell me a little bit more about your background as uh, Director of Education. How did you get involved with Earthwatch and, you know, as Director of Education, who are you educating specifically?
1: I got involved with this, you know, at some point in my life I decided, I mean, I've always been concerned with the state of the planet, and I think, as you know, we're uh, we're moving in a direction where a lot of um, issues which seem to feel like they were in the hinterlands are becoming more and more critical as days go by. And at some point I decided that uh, I was going to get involved instead of being a spectator. Um, and so I went to school and, and sort of refocused myself in uh, pursued specifically the idea of how you engage people on these difficult issues and create behavior change. Um, So getting my doctorate was sort of the first step in getting involved with Earthwatch, but I particularly was interested in working for Earthwatch because moving people who, uh, creating behavior change in individuals is very difficult to do, and I think it requires sort of a a complex of different um, experiences, uh, getting them out of their comfort zones um, getting them involved with real work that you know, is, in, impacts real people and has impact on the world, um, and uh, tailoring that with a specific educational program. And Earthwatch is able to do all of that by taking people literally out of their situation somewhere else in the world or somewhere else in the country, meeting different people, involving them with things that they haven't done before, and connecting them with people who are working on really important issues and giving them sort of that insider view. Uh, so I thought it was a really important and uh, unique way of creating change.
0: No, I I always I always bring up uh, environmentalism as a hop a hot button topic which really isn't the case i mean it's it's been talked about for decades but i feel like within the past 10 years it's really become a specifically a hot button topic and it's something that people are talking about a lot more but with that rise in environmentalism as a hot topic have you seen an increase in volunteerism a decrease about the same
1: um you know i think in, i mean I, I think it's remained about the same uh I think where we have seen an increase in particular, again, is with corporations who are seeing that change has to be made and are really trying to ask themselves the difficult questions of what are those changes really, how can we better understand them, and how do we sort of find a way of integrating them into what we do. Um, so I think, you know, as a sector, that's probably the largest increase in in what we've seen as volunteers who get involved with what we do. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, uh, switching topics on you a little bit, I found this fantastic article of yours on Treehugger. Anyone who listens to the show knows that I love the Treehugger website. There's, you know, it's it's like the New York Times of environmental education. So, um, tell us a little bit more about your golden opportunity for Obama.
1: Well, I really sort of I mean, it actually could be related to the question you asked before uh, regarding how many people seem to be getting involved or not getting involved in environmental issue issues, um, you know, I, there's the general sense, and if you look at national surveys on, on environmental concerns, you know, by a wide margin, people are concerned with what's going on in the natural world, though they may not fully understand it, and they may not really fully understand how to become involved with it, but, um, you know, I think you don't have to be living too far under a rock to know that there's something going on, and there's a lot of issues that we all really need to be paying attention to. Um but uh, I'm totally blanking on the on – the, on, <laughs> hold on a second.
0: Well, tell tell me more about your plan for how he intends to use the $700 billion bailout that, that he's coming up with.
1: Right. So I guess to tie it back in, I think um, in getting people involved, whether people are sort of – moving in that direction or not, the reality remains that there are significant challenges that are not going to go away and are only going to get worse. And if we don't take action now and actually find ways of sort of restructuring our society, um, we're going to be in for a very rocky ride in the next 20, 30 years. And so we seem to be approaching a moment for a substantial change socially. I mean, we've got a lot of problems that we hear every day about, such as the financial meltdown. Um, but we also have a significant opportunity for change. We have a new administration coming into office who appears to be all about creating change and, and thinking about change that 's on the long term, not on the short term mm-hmm. and um, You know I was reading an article that said Obama is creating a new sort of seven hundred billion dollar stimulus plan that's that 's different than the plan that 's already been put into play the, by the Bush administration to bail out the banks. Um, and it's, it's not explicitly clear what this plan entails, though there's some suggestion that the plan will involve sort of a, a bailout, if you will, of social services, states, uh, rebuilding infrastructure. And in recent weeks we've heard that he's interested in rebuilding the highway system and, and other such projects, perhaps creating some middle-class uh, tax breaks to help uh, give uh, cash back to the middle class and help stimulate the economy through consumerism all of which sound very safe, but I think there's also a huge opportunity here given sort of the, the, the perfect storm, if you will, of these major environmental challenges that we're facing globally um, with sort of the internal economic and social challenges we're facing to turn the ship around and create substantial structural change. And this is something a lot of people have been talking about, but I think Al Gore in particular has set a challenge for the next 10 years to fundamentally restructure the way that we do everything. Um, one of the ways that everyone is pointing to that we can do that is actually to end our use of carbon, uh, end our use of fossil fuels um, by way of you know, significantly reducing our uh, carbon footprint, our, our global impact on the world through carbon uh, emissions, and transforming ourselves into a leader of renewable energies. So my idea was instead of spending the $700 billion solely on sort of a refurbishment of old infrastructures, was to actually use that money to transform our economy and our infrastructure into a renewable energy economy and infrastructure. Meaning rather than just sort of saying, well, it's too expensive to put into place wind towers or it's too expensive to put into solar panels or if we just had an economy that was better able to produce these things but there's sort of a production bottleneck, actually use this money as a cash infusion to stimulate a massive widespread installation of wind technology uh, and solar technology. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but, you know, wind technology alone, there was a study done in 1991 by the U.S. Department of Energy, which showed the three states of Kansas, North Dakota, and Texas by themselves had enough wind uh, potential energy to supply the entire uh, power for the United States. Um, if we were but to build the wind farms to capture that energy and then build the infrastructure that could channel that energy around the country. So there seems to be a huge opportunity to fundamentally transform our physical infrastructure as well as our economy, as well as our um, global environmental footprint, Um, but seems to be, you know, sometimes the will lacking in doing that. So I wanted to throw the idea out there in case anyone was listening from the Obama administration that now is the time, and uh, this cash infusion could go quite a long ways in making that happen.
0: Now, just out of curiosity, where are we coming up with this $700 billion? Well, Does does anyone know exactly where all this money is coming from and, and why we have the plan in place that we do?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, it's coming from the same place that the other $700 billion came from, which was uh, you know borrowing it from China or Saudi Arabia um, and then spending it on whatever we want to spend it on. Now, if you want to spend it on sort of bailing out the system that got us into a financial mess in the first place, that's one way of doing it. But we could actually use it as an opportunity to spend it on ourselves and build a system that and instead of just sort of you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line keeping us where we are now will fundamentally change uh, who we are and, and how we think about the way we interact with the world. Mm-hmm. But the money, you know, it, it, it could come from taxes, but it, you know, in the short run you know, they're going to be borrowing it from other places. They're going to borrow it, it regardless your, what of what we do your with it. What
0: expenses with um, the ho- But it seems sorry, that we should,
1: we should find a way of using it intelligently as opposed to just simply sort of pouring it back into a tired system.
0: Right, right, I completely support that. What does the high cost of the energy subsidies stem from? Is it production of these awesome wind towers? Is it you know installing the solar panels? Is it maintenance? What does the cost come from?
1: well I, I think um, I think the the initial cost would be in production, and there's sort of an estimate that an annual uh, cost for production of enough wind energy um, as we come up to scale over, say, the next five or ten years would be in the, the range of about $300 billion per year. Um, so there's quite a substantial monetary value assigned to what would be needed in production. However, that that, that uh, some may seem large, but it's actually, ironically enough, the same amount of money that uh, we subsidize globally globally. Uh, oil industries in, in different ways. So if we were to stop subsidizing the production and transportation of oil and actually invested it in, in wind power, we could have a neat exchange of funds there. And also um, the $300 billion per year over the next, say, five to ten years is also small in comparison to the $1 trillion that's spent a year in oil exploration and, uh, you know, producing the oil that we being over here and use, which goes to degrade the world instead of uh, making it a better place.
0: Now, here's uh, but, an interesting question. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of um, big energy companies who are vying for the chance to get on board with these big money opportunities. How can we tell, as consumers, which companies are more reliable than others, which may help us out in the long run? I mean, there's there's a ton of wind power companies out there. How do we know who's good and who's not?
1: Um, well, that's another good question, but I think I have a different answer for you. I think what we should actually be doing, and again, this is one of the sort of interesting synergies of this moment of time. One of the other big things that we see in the news today is what's happening with the auto industry, and uh, sort of the you know the the potential downfall of the biggest three automakers in this country, and sort of uh, them scrambling to redefine who they are and you know what kind of cars they make, and you know hopefully they will. They will find their footing and continue to make cars, albeit hopefully more green cars. But I think there's a neat opportunity because in order to go up to the scale that we would need to go up to capture enough wind power to, uh, you know, essentially power the United States solely through wind if we were just to go that avenue, the the production bottleneck is severe in, in the sense that there's a lot more people who would like to have these towers in place but there's not enough infrastructure to actually produce enough towers to meet the needs. And there's not enough sort of cash influx for people to build more facilities to build these towers because uh, you know they can't get enough of them sold to people who want them to bring the revenue back in to you know, sort of increase production. So again, there's this sort of crazy bottleneck going on. And again, this is where some of that $700 billion could come in instead of incentivizing the big three auto industries just to go back and either do business as usual or make cars, we could actually re-outfit them to produce wind towers. And, and, you know, if if you were to compare this to... You know, what the United States did in four years during World War II, going from having no infrastructure to build things like tanks and warships and airplanes to, within just a couple of years, going into mass production of these things enough to win a war, we certainly could go into mass production very quickly with a minor retooling in the auto industry infrastructure to produce these kind of wind towers um, and make them available to all of those who would want them make them available to states like North Dakota or Texas or Kansas or other sort of Midwestern states that have a lot of wind power and enable them to build a new green economy. Something else actually sort of a side note in tandem with that in sort of an interesting national project, and we hear about with the economic downturn, all these loss of jobs, this would create a huge amount of job potential for people who are either in the auto industry and who have lost their jobs, get a little retraining, and be able to make wind towers, but it also creates other potential to create um, a new kind of infrastructure that would be required to connect state to state with cables that would channel this power appropriately to cities and towns who could then use it. So there's a whole switch and potential change in creation of a new job market as well.
0: I, that's awesome. I think your Golden Opportunity Plan is certainly something that, you know, Let's get Barack on the horn. <laughs> Let's do <laughs> that.
1: Plan. <laughs> I'll dial in for that next conversation.
0: <laughs> What's his phone number? Somebody, somebody's got yeah, don't it. Yeah, I know. It's keeping a it um, secret,
1: I think.
0: Now that you've got me thinking about wind power, and this is coming from someone who knows absolutely nothing about wind power, I mean, do they, put, do they specifically put wind towers down in Hurricane Alley? Do we get more energy from a good hurricane than we do from, say, putting towers along the coast of Massachusetts? I wonder, is this something I'm going to have to look at? Well, I
1: mean, certainly the more wind power you have, the more energy you're going to generate. Uh, I I think a a hurricane might be more wind power than than might be good for your average wind tower. Um, But, you know, with increases in technology, you don't necessarily have to put it in the most windy areas. The study I mentioned earlier that was done in 1991 um, you know, it was done almost 20 years ago, and since that time, the technology has improved to the point where wind towers are 20 no, percent, 20 times more efficient, and they're also able to go up higher. Instead of about 40 meters, they go up to about 100 meters into the air and are therefore able to have a more constant, stronger uh, stream of air passing through them and generate energy, but they can also generate energy at lower speeds. So it's not, it's not necessary to put them in the windiest areas that you can imagine, um, but you bring up another important point as well. It's that these don't also have to be land-based. They can be sea-based. Uh, mm-hmm. There's projects underfoot to put in wind towers as far as 50 miles out to sea, so they're not sort of disturbing the, the view of the people who live on the coast, but they're able to generate you know, substantial amounts of energy out to sea as well. And I know I've been saying a lot about wind power, but it doesn't necessarily have to be solely wind power though it's certainly one of the most highly productive, efficient uh, scalable technologies out there. There's quite um, significant advancements being made on solar energy as well. Um, and sort of as a, a tandem you know you could have some wind power input you could also uh, increase your solar uh, power capacity and infrastructure and as well as some geothermal, um, and there's some other technologies that's being developed so that you have a multi-purpose detect- effect that would, again, create more jobs in different sectors as well as solve um, the energy crisis. And ideally, you know, you put this into, into place with all of these different technologies over the next five to ten years, and we can, can completely eliminate um, our use of carbon-burning fuels uh, in the nation. Yeah, Obviously, it's, cars it's, would still be using them, and there would be a lot of retrofitting that would happen. Or need to happen as well for houses and or businesses who might be running off of coal and/or oil-powered uh, systems. Uh, but again, that's another opportunity. That's another business that individuals could get into um, through this opportunity.
0: I think you've touched on two really fantastic points here. The first being that um, converting to these these alternative energies is certainly going to boost the economy, boost the job market, and in an industry where we are dying for new jobs, that would certainly, you know, help alleviate some of the pressure in the job sector. Um, the other being that I think the uh, the automotive bailout specifically should have had that stipulation, like, we will bail you guys out, but you're going to have to make some very serious changes to the way cars are produced and, and uh, you know, looking into converting to more hybrids and increasing sales of of you know solar panelled paneled cars, things of that nature. It, it, we certainly could have taken more steps to to push the environmental movement along with said bailout.
1: No, and I think you're right, and I think that's 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 a good observation. And I think you know that's why what you and I do is really important. Is that you know from outside the system there are voices who are thinking differently, thinking creatively, and willing to take action. You know, it, it's sort of interesting. I was having a conversation with a colleague the other day and talking about similar kinds of solutions. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, there are so many out-of-the-box solutions uh, sort of being kicked around today. There's a lot of people, and it's all about thinking out of the box, thinking out of the box, and we hear again and again, all we really have to do is think out of the box. And while that's true, we really need to start acting out of the box. And I think one of the challenges is that, you know, you, myself, as well as any citizen of the globe out there needs to begin acting themselves i mean saving the world is not a, a a participant it's not a an observational sport it's a participant sport and we need to put pressure on our government as well as on our local businesses or our national businesses to say that you know change needs to be made and we need to get need you to get on board with this in the instance of what happened with the the auto bailout um, you know, it's it's not as transparent as we would have liked, and perhaps there's not as much voice from, you know, individuals who would have us act out of the box. But hopefully that will change with the Obama administration, hence my sort of indirect plea to them to to listen to some of what I've got to say, as well as some other individuals who know far more than I do about these things, to incorporate them in plans moving forward. Because this is a real golden opportunity to make change. There's a lot of things that seem to be going wrong, um, but we can handle those with thinking about the things that we can do that will make them go right.
0: Well, and I think you certainly nailed it today, and I think maybe the most frustrating thing about being an environmentalist is having all these fantastic ideas and having all these golden opportunities and the frustration of having no one who's actually implementing them. So, you know, let's let's keep being that squeaky wheel. <laughs> Absolutely, will get oiled.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So, thank you so much for joining us today. And do you want to uh, give us the Earthwatch Institute website so that people can go and learn a little bit more about what you do officially?
1: I would love to. Um, it's simply www.earthwatch.org. Earthwatch is all one word. And we are interested in hearing from anyone. You know, we, we really we run opportunities for people to um, think differently about their world, to understand how they're interconnected and interdependent upon each other and in an environment, and to think, you know, differently and creatively about how they use natural resources and how they can participate either in their local community or, or globally to um, not only learn about science and culture and, and the ways that uh, we treat the planet, but ways that they can change it.
0: Fantastic, and anyone looking to read the full story on Alan Fortescue on Tree Hugger is uh, is welcome to go check it out. It's a great article. Um, Alan, thank you so much for joining, this, joining us this week, and hopefully next week we will be back with Byron. With Byron, that's all I want. I want him back. So thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll be back next week.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye.